Hello and welcome to Sports Island. Glad to have you listening to this podcast wherever you are. Sports Island is hosted by Rick Mitchell, a police officer and avid sports fan. This podcast talks about the four major pro sports, the NFL, NHL, NBA, and MLB, along with all of the major college sports. The main purpose of this podcast is to keep you up to date on all of the latest news and information from across the sports world. In addition to that, This podcast features a lot of statistical information and data that the average sports fan would not be aware of. Glad to have you. Thanks for listening. Let's get started. Here is your host, Rick Mitchell. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 109 of the show, and it is definitely a great episode for you this week. We have a ton of information to get into We have reached the Super Bowl in the National Football League, so we'll have an in-depth preview on that since it is Super Bowl week. Uh, We'll recap the Pro Bowl that just happened this past weekend, and in the National Hockey League, their All-Star weekend was this past weekend, so we'll take a look and recap that, do a standings update in the NBA, and then the Around the Island segment has a lot of information coming at you uh, across all of the major pro sports, including a lot of information Uh, to pass along from the NBA's trade deadline uh, that is this week. So uh, we will not waste any time. We will start right away in the National Football League. And we have officially reached Super Bowl week. It is Super Bowl 57 this upcoming weekend. And uh, before we get into a preview of that, I want to recap uh, the Pro Bowl that was this past weekend. And we talked a whole bunch uh, previously about Uh, how the Pro Bowl changed its format. It's no longer a a skills competition and then the Pro Bowl actual football game. The the NFL decided that that was uh, a little too boring, I guess. The game was getting a little boring, which I think the fans could agree. It was more of a two-hand touch or flag football game. And so they changed it to where they did uh, a skills competition, part one, on Thursday night. And then on Sunday afternoon, They did part two of the skills competition, which featured a couple of flag football games, all right? So I previewed all of these events on last week's episode, but I want to just recap kind of how all those went down. So on Thursday night, the skills competition got started out. We saw a precision passing competition. Basically, all six quarterbacks that were there at the Pro Bowl uh, had to throw passes at targets that were uh, given a numerical value. And some of them were moving, some of them were stationary, some of them were really close, some of them were farther away. And um, the quarterback with the most points after, I believe they gave him 30 seconds each, uh, maybe 45, somewhere between there. I think it was 30, though, uh, was given, uh, you know, their numerical value and the quarterback with the most points won. Well, your winner, uh, of course, it was AFC versus NFC, this whole skills competition, right? And... um, The winner of Precision Passing was the AFC's Derek Carr, all right? He ended up with 31 points, all right, which is is quite a bit. And uh, Ryan Clark from ESPN interviewed Derek Carr immediately after uh, talking about, you know, man, you were really hot. Have you ever been that hot in your career? And Derek Carr's response was something to the effect of, uh, I've been hot, but apparently not that hot because that's why I'll be playing somewhere else next year, which is, that's hilarious because, as you know, Derek Carr got benched the final two games, and even though he's got a no-trade clause, he's seeking a trade. So 
Uh, it was pretty funny there by Derek Carr, but the AFC won the precision passing. Next event, we saw what they called the lightning round, which featured three events, actually. So the events that comprised the lightning round event was a water balloon toss, all right? See big muscular guys, uh, football players throwing teeny tiny water balloons, pretty funny. Uh, But your winners uh, advanced to the high stakes competition, all right? And the high stakes competition is... Uh, I think there were four players from each conference, AFC and NFC, that had to catch punts from a jugs machine. They were probably about, you know, 50 yards away. And uh, if they caught the ball, they had to hang on to it the next go round. Uh, so all, all eight guys went, and then whoever dropped it was out. Whoever caught it moved on to the second round. Second round, you had to hang on to that one football, catch the second one, go through that round. Third round, if you made it through the first two, you had to hang on to two footballs and catch a punt, you know, fielding that. If you caught that one, you had to field a fourth punt while holding three footballs and so on, all right? So it was pretty pretty cool. Um, so the, the top scores from that moved on to what they called the thrill of the spill, and that was uh, two players from each conference, the two finalists that you know, made it past the water balloon toss and the high stakes. Uh, Two players from each conference got to throw footballs at targets. And once you hit all four targets, uh, you got the, it basically dunked the uh, opposing conference's coach. Uh, It was supposed to be water, but they filled it with confetti instead. Um, And your winner of the lightning round, the winner basically of all of those events, you know, they did well. The water balloon toss moved on to high stakes, did well in high stakes, and then moved on to thrill the spill. So the winner of the lightning round was the AFC, and that duo was Trey Hendrickson of the Cincinnati Bengals and Joel Batonio of the Cleveland Browns. All right, so they, they looked pretty good out there doing that. Trey Hendrickson really looked phenomenal. He was a, he's a spectacular athlete, plays the defensive end position for the Bengals, but looked pretty impressive there in that lightning round competition. Uh, the next event we saw was the longest drive, all right? This had nothing to do with football. It was golf, and they were at Bears Best Golf Course, which is there in Las Vegas. They went to the driving range, all right? Uh, now, the driving range, I will say, um, had a pretty steep downhill lie, all right? So uh, these, you know, big football players, not really what you would consider golfers, all right? Uh, they got up there. Uh, I believe there was four from each conference as well, and they got... Uh, two swings at the ball, or three. They got three swings at the ball, all right, to try and hit it, obviously, as far as they can. And your winner of that event was the AFC, uh, Buffalo Bills safety Jordan Poyer. He hit the ball 320 yards, all right? Now, I was very surprised to see how well a lot of the guys hit those golf balls, all right? Now, football is not a natural transition to golf like hockey is, all right? Most NHL players are pretty good golfers. Some are very good golfers with really low handicaps, but you just don't see that with football players, right? They're a lot bigger, a lot more muscular. Uh, it's, it's a lot harder to hit a golf ball effectively. If you think about the best golfers on the PGA Tour, you know they're about... Uh, 5'8", 5'10", something like that, not very muscular. Uh, you know, it's just not the average build of a, of a golfer. So it was pretty cool to see 
these big football players uh, hitting the golf ball, crushing a Poyer. Uh, Jordan Poyer plays quite a bit is what, what we came to find out, uh, you know, uh, interview with him. But, um, yeah, it was that was pretty cool. You know, obviously nothing to do with football, but just seeing those guys out there. We had a happy Gilmore swing going on, and uh, it was just, um, you know, pretty cool to see that. The next event we saw was dodgeball, all right? And the way that they did this, uh, the AFC's offense played the AFC's defense, and the NFC's offense played the NFC's defense, and the winner of those two games moved to the championship. So in the AFC game, uh, the AFC defense beat the AFC offense, and in the NFC game, the offense beat the defense. Now, the defense looked like they won when Demario Davis threw one. It hit Saquon Barkley, didn't catch it, but it hit him in the face, uh, which is against the rules. So uh, Demario Davis was technically disqualified for that, which meant that Saquon Barkley won, moving the NFC offense into the championship game against the AFC defense. And in that dodgeball matchup, the NFC offense won decisively, all right? Minka Fitzpatrick was the last man standing for the AFC against three uh, NFC players. I think it was Saquon Barkley, uh, Christian McCaffrey, and Dalvin Cook. Three NFC running backs. All three running backs the NFC were the final three there in dodgeball, and they ended up taking out Minka Fitzpatrick. So the NFC won dodgeball. And then the last thing that uh, was on Thursday was part one of the best catch, all right? Now, I say part one because uh, there were four guys, two from each conference, that uh, uh, attempted this event. And this event, was it was weird because it was pre-recorded, all right? Kind of like the longest drive was. It was at the golf course, you know, the day prior, the day of, whatever. But the best catch, at least most recently, has been recorded live on the field, all right? And so I'm sure, you know, they made it more of a show because it's Vegas, whatever, uh, which was fine. I mean, it was cool. Uh, but your two participants in the AFC were Buffalo Bills wide receiver Stephon Diggs and Denver Broncos cornerback Pat Sertan, all right? And then the NFC, it was Minnesota Vikings wide receiver Justin Jefferson and Detroit Lions wide receiver Amon Ross St. Brown. Okay, and so what they did was uh, Stefan Diggs was he was in one of the hotel pools. He was laying on a pool float. He caught three footballs, one with each hand and then one between his legs. All right, so that was pretty nifty while laying down, of course. Uh, Pat Sertan, he went out to Fremont Street, had himself a little fun. He went to the Fremont Street experience. He went zip lining down Fremont Street and he caught a pass uh, mid zip line. So uh, that was pretty cool, pretty impressive. Uh, over on the NFC side, uh, Justin Jefferson, he was at the Paris Hotel, went to the Eiffel Tower where he caught passes that were thrown down from top uh, the top of the tower, near the top of the tower, all right? He couldn't see the football. Uh, Matt Leinart actually threw him those passes. Leinart was inside the tower to where Justin Jefferson could not see him. So we just kind of heaved the ball over the edge. Jeff, uh, Jefferson didn't have any eyes on it until it was already coming down. Adam had to make an adjustment. He ended up catching it uh, behind his head with one hand. So it was pretty cool. And then Amon Ross St. Brown, he went to the deepest pool on the strip. Now, I don't remember what hotel it was, but it was the deepest pool. Uh, he actually made two catches. The first one, he ran from the pool deck onto several stationary floats that were spaced out in the water, basically like he was walking or running on water, caught the ball as he was falling. 
into the water. And then the second catch, he ran from the pool deck, jumped onto a mini trampoline, did a front flip, and caught a pass as he was going into the water. So that was very, very impressive. So those four went to a fan vote. The top vote-getter from each conference moved on to the finals, which was held on Sunday. Well, that brings us to Sunday. And we'll keep the best catch for a minute because that was the last event that they showed. So Sunday, uh, we had some flag football games, all right? They actually played two flag football games. Uh, They were two, I think they were uh, 15, 20-minute halves, uh, two halves, all right? And the running clock, I think it was. The field was only 50 yards long, shortened, right? And full flag football rules were in effect. And we saw some guys play in both games and some other guys play only in one of the two games, all right, so that was, you know, they, they wore the flags and, and did all that, ran plays and, you know, couldn't blitz, but I think once per game or once per half. Um, so, it, I mean, they, they did call some penalties for a, for a hit or for a, a shirt grab that was a hold, you know. I mean, so it was a legit game, you know. It was certainly worth watching. The first game, though, was, was pretty intense, came down to the last minute, and the NFC actually won that one 33-27, to uh, Dallas Cowboys wide receiver CeeDee Lamb caught the game-winning touchdown in that one with 12 seconds left. All right, and then the second game, much lower scoring. AFC came out on top 18-13, to 13, all right? So that was, you know, that was the only real football that we got. And um, realistically, uh, the Pro Bowl over the last, I don't know, 7 to 10 years has pretty much been a glorified flag football game anyways, at least with two-hand touch, you know, something like that. They've worn helmets and pads, but they didn't really hit, and it just, it pretty much became a flag football game, so that's why the NFL opted to uh, make it a weekend-long skills competition. The next event on Sunday was called uh, Kick-Tack-Toe, all right, and that was where the kickers, the punters, and the long snappers each got a crack. They rotated through for each conference uh, on a big giant tic-tac-toe board that was like video screen um, from, you know, certain yardages away. Uh, Long snappers had to snap the ball like long snap style and try to hit one of them. Uh, Field goal kickers had to kick a field goal and punters had to punt. And the first team to get three in a row uh, on the board like a tic-tac-toe, right? First one to have a uh, tic-tac-toe, connect three, right? One and the AFC just absolutely smoked the NFC, and that one wasn't even close. Next event we saw was the Gridiron Gauntlet. This was basically a long relay race, featured several different things, a lot of guys being used in each conference. In this one, you know, running through a wall, jumping over a wall, crawling under, you know, basically like an obstacle course type deal, sled push, um, you know, weighted sled push. Uh, just it was kind of a you know pretty neat little deal. A lot of, a lot of different players and, and positions were used in this one. Uh, the NFC came out on top of that one. Next event we saw was called Move the Chains, and that is where they had like a weighted wall that had um, gym weights uh, attached to it and uh, if, you know five racks, uh, and each had 10 weights on it, I think, uh, all 45-pound weights. And so uh, they had to, each conference had five guys had to go remove all the weights and then run around to the other side and pull it with first down chains, all right, hence the name Move the Chains, and uh, it was the best two out of three, and uh, they had to pull the wall uh, 10 yards after they got all the weight off of it, 
and uh, the first one to pull at 10 yards won. Well, the AFC took two out of three there, so that was that was fun. And then uh, the last thing we saw was the best catch finale. All right, it was the continuation from Thursday. The top vote getter in the AFC was Stefan Diggs, and the top vote getter in the NFC was Amon Ross St. Brown. Both of the guys that were in the pool making catches, all right, in round one. Uh, but their final act was live on the field on Sunday, and they had to make two catches, all right? Uh, they got multiple attempts at each. Uh, they both used trampolines, props, including their own brothers throwing them passes, all right? Stephon Diggs had Dallas Cowboys corner Trevon Diggs throwing him passes, and then Amon Ross St. Brown uh, had his brother Equinemius St. Brown take part in his second catch. Their catches were scored live by a panel of three judges, Snoop Dogg, Pete Davidson, and LaDainian Tomlinson. Uh, and in the end, after two rounds, the winner of the best catch was Amon Ross St. Brown of the NFC. So each competition was three points for a victory, right, uh, for each conference, right? So uh, each event, the winning conference got three points, except flag football each of those games was worth six points. So the final score for the Pro Bowl games, the AFC won 21 to 15. All right. They won more events and uh, had a higher score. So the AFC won 21 to 15. But overall, I think it was a great, uh, you know, I, I do miss the Pro Bowl itself because it was cool seeing all the, all the team's helmets out there um, represented and uh, but again, it was just a glorified flag football game or two hand touch. So I, I think the NFL definitely hit a home run with this. I think it's more interesting as a fan to see the skills competitions and do to watch the players do things that they aren't, you know, really accustomed to doing or that it's different. I guess kind of watching their skills it it, it highlights just how good these athletes are, as opposed to a fluff game like the Pro Bowl. So um, I thought it was very cool. You know, I, I I'm. I would be willing to bet that the NFL uh, will keep this format for next year, uh, the Thursday, Sunday, uh, two-day event uh, for the skills competition. So uh, Vegas was a fantastic host. I, I do believe that that is probably where it's going to be. But uh, again, I think uh, it was uh, an A-plus effort by the NFL. I enjoyed it. And um, if you saw part of it uh, or any of it, you kind of know what I'm talking about with that. But that brings us to this weekend, which is Super Bowl 57, all right? That is this Sunday, February 12th. Game is at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time on Fox, all right? It is at State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona, which is home of the Arizona Cardinals, all right? And our matchup this year is the NFC champion Philadelphia Eagles against the AFC champion Kansas City Chiefs, all right? We all knew that. Some storylines heading into this thing, all right? This is actually the first time in five years since 2017 uh, that both number one seeds have advanced to the Super Bowl, all right? Philly was the number one seed in the NFC. Of course, Kansas City, the number one seed in the AFC. First time since 2017 uh, that both number one seeds have made it to the Super Bowl. And, oh, yeah, by the way, that 2017 year was also the last time that the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl. So interesting fact there. Um, in this game, we have a set of brothers who are playing, the Kelsey brothers. This game has also been called the Kelsey Bowl. Uh, of course, Philadelphia Eagles offensive lineman Jason Kelsey against uh, his brother, 
Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. All right, they're going to play against each other. They're actually the first set of brothers to play against each other in Super Bowl history. All right, so that's cool. We also have another storyline there with the head coach, Andy Reid. He is currently the head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, and he is coaching against the Philadelphia Eagles, who is a team that he coached for a very long time and took to the Super Bowl. So uh, that game's special for both the Kelsey brothers and Andy Reid. Uh, the quarterbacks in this thing, Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts, all right, they have a combined age of 51 years and 337 days, which makes them the youngest, that uh, is the youngest combined age of starting quarterbacks in Super Bowl history. Now, even cooler about this is that both of them are from Texas, and they played high school football here in Texas. All right, Patrick Mahomes is from White House, Texas, just outside of Tyler, and Jalen Hurts is from Channel View, which is just outside, went to Channel View High School, just outside Houston. All right, so both quarterbacks are, are Texas-born quarterbacks. Of course, Pat Mahomes went to Texas Tech, and Jalen Hurts went to Alabama and then Oklahoma. Uh, Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver Devontae Smith, he's looking to become just the fifth player ever to win a Heisman Trophy, a college football national title, and a Super Bowl. All right, The most recent person to do that was Reggie Bush, and so Devontae Smith is looking to become just the fifth player ever to do all three of those things. Uh, what a what a feather in the cap that would be on Devontae Smith's resume. And then, as always, if you want to attend this Super Bowl, it is going to cost you dearly, all right? At, as of this time last week, now these ticket prices obviously fluctuate, but as of this time last week, all right, which was a week and a half out from the Super Bowl, uh, the cheapest ticket to get into the Super Bowl cheapest was $4,859. And the most expensive ticket came in at $26,325. All right, that puts you row 17 at the 50-yard line. All right, which, um, yeah, that's that's quite a bit of money. That's that's more money than I got in my bank account, you know, twenty six grand on one ticket. So uh, that is... Um, I just wanted to throw that in there. Um, final storyline coming in here. Uh, the Philadelphia Eagles, they're going to be wearing their green home jerseys for this thing. Kansas City is going to be wearing their road white jerseys. And I only mention that because, for what it's worth, the team wearing white jerseys has won 15 out of the past 18 Super Bowls. All right, so uh, just keep that little nugget in your pocket, all right? But for the team previews, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles, NFC champions, this is their fourth ever Super Bowl appearance and their first since 2017 when they won it. They are one in two in their previous three Super Bowls, all right? Uh, I mentioned they won a few years ago in 2017. Uh, their path to the Super Bowl, they went 14-3 and in the regular season. They won the NFC East and, of course, clinched the top overall seed in the NFC. Their divisional round game in the playoffs this year, they beat the New York Giants badly, thirty-eight to seven. And uh, in the in the conference title game, uh, they beat the San Francisco 49ers thirty-one to seven. Just another beatdown. Now we know that Brock Purdy got hurt, yada yada. You know all that 
other stuff. But the point is, is they've been in two blowouts, all right? They have outscored their opponents in the playoffs by a combined score of 69 to 14, all right? That is just an absurd point differential in two playoff games. And they are actually, they won both the divisional round game and the conference title game, both by at least 21 points, which made them the fifth team ever to do that, right? The previous four teams to do that all went on to win the Super Bowl, all right? So history is certainly on the Philadelphia Eagles' side. Uh, Jalen Hurts, that offense, you know, Hurts is, these probably are the two quarterbacks that are going to finish one and two in the MVP standings for the entire season. Um, Jalen Hurts uh, has just been spectacular. He's become a lot better throwing the football, and he has uh, a plethora of weapons to choose from, A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, Dallas Goddard, and then, of course, in the backfield, uh, Philadelphia is a very run-heavy team, uh, set the record for the most rushing touchdowns in an NFL season with 38. That is including the playoffs. And, uh, of course, Jalen Hurts had 15 rushing touchdowns by himself this year, which is also a record, uh, NFL record for the most rushing touchdowns by a quarterback in history. And then they have Miles Sanders, Boston Scott, and Kenneth Gainwell, all right? And all three of them scored uh, so far in the playoffs. So the Philly is more of a ground-and-pound type, uh, type team, all right? They like to run the ball, eat the clock, and they can also quick strike, all right, uh, with A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith on the outside. So their offense is very potent. Uh, the best offensive line in the league, led by, of course, Jason Kelsey, Lane Johnson, all right, those guys uh, anchor that offensive line. That's uh, uh, Jordan Mailata as well. So uh, just a superb offensive line, superb run game, uh, MVP caliber quarterback. And then on the defensive side, they were the number one passing defense in the league, all right? They led the NFL in sacks this season with uh, 70, uh, added five more in their divisional round game, and, uh, you know, just a couple more last week as well. So this team can get to the quarterback. They have uh, James Bradbury and Darius Slay on the outside, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson in the secondary, just an elite defense as well, which is why they were the best team in football all year. So very, very potent uh, on both sides of the ball for Philadelphia. And then on the Kansas City side, this is their fifth Super Bowl appearance in team history. All right, it's actually their third appearance in the Super Bowl in the last four years. So three out of the last four years, they've appeared in the Super Bowl, and their record in the previous four games is two and two. All right, so this is um, their fifth Super Bowl appearance. Uh, their path to the Super Bowl, all right? The Kansas City Chiefs, they went 14-3 and in the regular season. They won the AFC West and were the number one overall seed in the AFC. In the divisional round, they beat the Jacksonville Jaguars 27-20. to All right, close game. Probably shouldn't have been as close as it was. Uh, needed a couple turnovers uh, to kind of help seal the deal in that one, but nonetheless, they won. And then the divisional round game, uh, or the uh, conference championship game, rather, against the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, now, Patrick Mahomes did get hurt in that Jacksonville game, so he was basically on one leg against the Bengals in the conference championship. Kansas City with that uh, you know epic last-second field goal to, to win 23-20, to all right, uh, to beat Joe Burrow and company, all right? So um, whereas the Eagles have dominated their point differential in the first uh, two playoff games. 
Kansas City has only won both of their playoff games by a combined 10 points, all right? So a little different. Um, Kansas City, though, obviously Patrick Mahomes, the health of, uh, you know, of his right ankle is going to be uh, key. He obviously played through it uh, against Cincinnati uh, last week, a week and a half ago, but uh, he certainly is going to be uh, out there on Sunday. And uh, it's just, you know, high ankle sprains are three to six week injuries from the time he injured it to the Super Bowl uh, would put him right at three weeks. So uh, and that's with playing on it for a week as well. So I don't know, you know, if he's going to be how close to 100 percent is Patrick Mahomes. But clearly, uh, as, it, as it showed in the conference championship game there against Cincinnati, that does not matter. Mahomes will be out there. He will play. He will be Patrick Mahomes. He will make plays that you didn't think he could make. And we already know he can make throws that nobody else in the league can make. So you have the very best quarterback in all of football, uh, the likely NFL MVP. You know, Hertz is obviously up there too, but uh, Mahomes is probably going to win that award. So you have him on your offense, uh, you know, above average offensive line, I would say not not great, certainly not like Philadelphia's. Uh, and then running backs, you know, Isaiah Pacheco, that dude has turned into a beast, man. I have never seen somebody run the ball so hard every time he touches the ball. I mean, he he runs 100 miles an hour every time he touches it, and he is a load to bring down. So he's going to be a key factor. And then on the outside, um, you know, while obviously Travis Kelsey is a tight end, he's their main receiving option. They should have Juju Smith-Schuster back for this one. Uh, Marquez Valdez Scantling certainly had a great game against Cincinnati. Uh, I don't think Nicole uh, Hardman's going to play in this game, but um, they just find guys to catch the ball. All right, and it's you know Kadarius Tony. They got him at the trade deadline. He's done nothing but be a playmaker and running the ball, catching the ball. Um, so they're all you know Kansas City's offense is absolutely loaded. Uh, they're not really a, a ground and pound team like Philadelphia. They're they're more of the air it out, quick strike offense, air raid type stuff. So uh, that may be problematic if if Philly wins the time of possession. They're going to have to score quickly. Kansas City is in order to uh, you know keep pace. If if they can't stop, uh, they they come into this game as the number one passing offense in the league. All right, so that's no surprise to anybody. And then on the defensive side, um, they do have some talent, all right? They got uh, Chris Jones, uh, Frank Clark, uh, George Karlaftis, you know, Nick Bolton, linebacker. Uh, in secondary, they're, they're not as good as, as Philadelphia, all right? And so uh, defense may be a bit problematic for them. Uh, Willie Gay, he's another name on defense, linebacker. Um, so... You know, Juan Thornhill is probably their best player in the secondary. Um, so their defense is certainly good. Um, I wouldn't say it's exceptional like Phillies has been. Uh, and, you know, with Chris Jones and Frank Clark, they can certainly get after the quarterback too. I, I just, you know, at the end of the day, this this game features the number one passing offense, all right, which is Kansas City, versus the number one passing defense this year, which is Philadelphia. So, Historically, what we've seen in matchups against the number number one offense versus number one defense is that defense wins championships, all right? And, um, you know, I think this has all the makings to just be a spectacular game, all right, on, on really both sides, all right? There's going to be some highlight offensive plays made. 
um, by the usual suspects, and there's going to be some terrific defensive plays too. All right, so I can see this game just being absolutely spectacular. These probably have been the two best teams in football all year. Their records would indicate such. You know, I obviously have uh, an extreme hatred to Philly being a Dallas Cowboys fan, but, you know, here's the deal. Uh, we'll talk about predictions, all right? This is my official prediction for Super Bowl 57, all right? You know, I know I talked about the jerseys. 15 of the last 18 have been won by team teams wearing white jerseys. Well, Kansas City's wearing white, but, you know, that's more of a um, uh, you know luck type of thing, right? I don't think there's really any any substance uh, substance to that, but uh, I do believe that uh, when it's all said and done, as much as I hate to say this, I am predicting that the Philadelphia Eagles win the Super Bowl. All right, I just think that the way that they play offense is going to be a problem for Kansas City. The best way to beat Kansas City is to keep the ball out of their hands, and I think Philly's offense can do that, and I know their defense can take it away. And so I think, um, you know, I certainly think that Philly's defense is is going to make more plays than Kansas City's defense, and that ultimately, points-wise, they can all, both offenses can score. So I'm going to take the number one defense to beat the number one offense. So give me the Philadelphia Eagles to win Super Bowl 57. Now, that does not mean that I will be rooting for Philly. I am certainly going to be rooting for Kansas City to win the Super Bowl. Um, but, um, you know, like I said, my official prediction is Philly to win. And uh, either way, I think it's going to be a spectacular game. I know everybody in the country just about is going to be watching it, so I don't need to say that. But uh, we will check back in next week and recap how Super Bowl 57 played out and who the champions of the NFL are. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League and talk about uh, this past weekend, which was the All-Star weekend in the NHL. Uh, we're not going to do a, st a standings update this week because there really haven't been a whole lot of games, obviously, with the All-Star break. The, the games just resumed uh, the other night on Monday, so uh, we'll save that for next week. We'll just save this for the the recap of the All-Star weekend, which uh, All-Star weekend in the NHL was in Sunrise, Florida at FLA Live Arena. It's home of the Florida Panthers down there in the Fort Lauderdale, Miami area. So it was a perfect place for a, for an all-star game and all the festivities that go on during that weekend. And uh, the NHL did a good job of mixing up uh, the events and taking it outdoors and getting creative with it, just like the Pro Bowl did, uh, just for, for viewership purposes. The players had fun with it. And so we saw uh, Friday night was the skills competition. It was just one night. And uh, the fastest skater competition is where they do one lap timed and try to do it as quickly as possible. Started off with six guys, got down to the finals, which was Andre Svechnikov of the Carolina Hurricanes and Kevin Fiala of the Los Angeles Kings. Those guys were in the finals, and the winner was Andre Svechnikov with a time of 13.6 seconds. All right, so pretty fast. So he is the uh, fastest skater. Uh, the next skills competition that we saw was the Breakaway Challenge. All right, and uh, there were four guys, uh, Matthew Kachuk, uh, Mitch Marner, uh, Sidney Crosby, Alex Ovechkin, uh, and I'm missing one. Oh, David Pasternak. Uh, those four guys competed in a breakaway challenge. Now, this thing used to be 
you actually went in on a breakaway and attempted to move and last year they brought a lot of props into it with costumes and mascots and and so it's it's really kind of gotten a little out of control uh this year david posternock came out dressed like happy gilmore you know did a happy gilmore type shot and then used a putter uh with a hockey puck to put it down the ice and then ended up getting a happy gilmore style putter to put it in the net further on down the ice uh matthew kachuk um got the uh lifeguard out he came out in shorts and a, and a button-up short sleeve shirt you know beach looking shirt uh with a bucket hat sunglasses on you know had a lifeguard as you know a prop and you know, I mean, it's just, it's kind of a dog and pony show. Mitch Marner came out in a white suit, you know, and it just was, uh, the winner of the event was actually Alexander Ovechkin and Sidney Crosby. They teamed up and they actually brought Alex Ovechkin's four-year-old son, Sergey, out there. And they gave it to Sergey, let him skate it down the ice and, you know, score a goal on Roberto Luongo, former Panthers goalie. So, it was judged by a panel of uh, four judges, all right, um, <clears throat> each each participant's breakaway. Uh, and, you know, of course, Ovechkin got a perfect score of 40 by using his, his little kid to, to, you know, win the event. So uh, that was, you know, I, I didn't personally, Matthew Kachuk had the best breakaway, actual breakaway, you know, where he legitimately shot the puck. Um, so I thought he should have won, but, uh, nonetheless, Ovechkin won that one. The Tendi tandem was the next competition and this was pretty cool. Basically, it's kind of hard to explain. You had to watch it. Basically the goalies, you know, one takes turns shooting the, the puck towards the other end of the ice and trying to score uh, a goalie goal. And if they miss the net, then the opposing team got, uh, a one on O. Um, I, I can't even really explain it. Like it's, it was a new competition this year and I think they did a good job. It was, it was a goalie competition and basically the more, the more saves that a goalie had, the more points, um, you know, that they, that they would accumulate because of their shooting, you know, they shoot the puck down the ice to try and get points. And if they save the puck from the imposing team coming down on them, uh, they kept their points as opposed to letting the other team come back. You know, it was, it, it's hard to explain, but it was it was a good competition. Basically, it was uh, each of the, the four divisions took place in that one. It was Central, Pacific, Atlantic, and Metro. The winner was the Central Division with 13 points. Pacific came in second with 11. Atlantic came in third with nine points. And then the Metropolitan Division finished in last with six points um next event was the splash shot all right this was actually on fort lauderdale beach guys had a little mini rink set up on the beach uh they were wearing flip-flops and crocs and they got took turns um they were in teams of two all right um first go around one guy would sit in the dunk tank and the other guy would shoot surfboards uh that were hanging um, up and you had to knock down all the surfboards and hit the uh, the dunk buzzer with hockey pucks of course then knock down the surfboards with the pucks and then hit the dunk buzzer um, with 
the puck, and that would dunk the opposing team's player. All right. Um, and so if you want, there was like two different rounds. We went from, uh, I think, eight guys down to four down to the winner. So it was just a couple of rounds. Uh, pretty interesting, right? It's it's on Fort Lauderdale Beach. It's out, off the ice. Guys were, you know, relaxed, enjoying themselves. So it was pretty fun. It was in the middle of the day, and it looked pretty warm. All the guys that got dunked said it was refreshing. So, uh, But your winner in that event was uh, the Colorado Avalanche tandem of Kale McCarr and Miko Ranton, and um, they, they did really well, especially in that final round. Uh, but that was just a cool new event, something that you really can't do um, anywhere else, really. I mean, <clears throat> that was a beach-themed event for you know South Florida, so that was well done. Accuracy shooting was another event. We've seen this plenty of times pretty much every year for the last uh, couple decades, right, um, where you have four four targets, one in each corner of the net, and uh, you have to knock out all four targets and uh, in the quickest amount of time. Uh, your winner in this event was New York Islanders' Brock Nelson. He beat Calgary Flames forward Nazem Kadri in the finals. Now, what's what's criminal about this whole thing is that uh, Edmonton Oilers' Connor McDavid, right, best player in the league, in the first round he went 4-for-4 four four in 9.9 seconds. So he did advance to the second round with that perfect score in 9 seconds, which is just insane. Second round he got matched up against Nazem Kadri in the Flames, and they were side-by-side side dueling it out. Uh, McDavid went four for four again, but he took ten point six seconds. He 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 made a little stick handle at the end uh, before he fired at fourth shot, and that actually cost him because Kadri was able to knock his fourth one uh, down in that time that he was trying to stick handle. So, you know, it, basically Connor McDavid went eight for eight in a combined, you know. 20 seconds between the two rounds and he still didn't win so I mean that's that seemed a little fraudulent but nonetheless Brock Nelson of the Islanders is your winner he he was pretty good too especially in that final round next event we saw this was probably my favorite it was called pitch and puck and it was on the plantation golf course there in Florida and um, they they went out to a, a particular hole they made it a par four, uh, but they teed off from 140 yards out and played it at a par four. And the reason they did that is because what the players used uh, hockey sticks instead of golf clubs. Now, for the first couple of shots, uh, there was actually an island green on this hole, too. So it was 140 yards to the pin, and the pin was on an island green. So you had to clear water. So the players had to shoot a hockey puck uh, with a hockey stick. They had to shoot a hockey puck as their drive and wherever it landed they had to shoot another puck across the water onto the green and then once they got on the green uh, they were able to use a golf ball uh, with their hockey stick to putt all right so they got to they got had to shoot a hockey puck down the fairway and then were able to use a golf ball on the green all right so uh, you had to Obviously, it's just like regular golf, lowest score wins. And in that event, lowest score uh, was a birdie, and that was recorded by Montreal Canadiens forward Nick Suzuki. All right, he had a great drive, great second shot, put it uh, probably about five or six feet from the cup, and then was able to put it in. So 
that event was really fun, all right, and I, I think that was well done by the NHL. Uh, and realistically, you could do that event at, really at any of these all-star uh, host venues because there's golf courses everywhere. But uh, it, you know, it was sunny. It just it looked it looked fun. It looked like um, you know that's not something we've seen before in these competitions. So uh, that was a well done new event there. The hardest shot, obviously, we've seen this for a hundred years. Uh, Vancouver Canucks Elias Pettersson. He won with a slap shot of 103.2 miles an hour which is that's pretty quick um certainly was the fastest of the uh of the group this year and um you know he's a forward uh, it's not not often that a forward wins this event but i think there's only been three forwards ever prior to Pedersen to win and um Pedersen became the fourth forward to do that um you know it, it just the whole weekend, you know, was really fun. Um, that that those were all the events that we saw. But just um, you, skills competition is always fun, right? I mean, you get to see kind of like the Pro Bowl. You get to see the guys kind of out of their element, you know, in their element. Certain events a little different. Um, you know, it was it was a bit dog and pony show at times, just like the Pro Bowl was. But overall, I think it was successful. All right. Um, they threw in some new events, uh, went to the beach, went to the golf course, made it a little more interesting, all right? And, and I think it was a lot of fun to watch. Now, the broadcast, though, that was a different story. Uh, the broadcast of the skills competition really was frustrating, all right? In all of the previous years that I can remember, uh, they started an event and finished it. So, like, they would start the breakaway challenge and finish it. And then they would move to the fastest skater and finish that event. Then they would move to pitch and puck, and they would, you know, finish that. So they did one event at a time, at least on the broadcast, right? And this year, they jumped around. So, like, they they did the first round of, of fastest skater. Then they went to one round of the breakaway challenge. Then they jumped to, you know, uh, one round of accuracy shooting. Uh, then the tendy tandem then one round you know the first they showed the first two shots of the of the pitch and puck and then once they got on the green they cut to another event and then came back later to finish the the hole out and it just i personally i think the, the broadcast was was poorly done um now i think espn did that to keep the interest of viewers who uh, aren't necessarily avid hockey fans so i get it but to me, it, it just it was tough to watch. If you watched it, you knew what I was talking about. They jumped around. You didn't really know what part of the competition you were in. And um, I just, if there was room for improvement there in the NHL, it's it's how they did the broadcast. I, I just think they need to keep all the events together and finish them one after the other instead of uh, jumping around. But nonetheless, I think it was uh, a successful weekend. Uh, great. Uh, skills competition, some new events, and overall it was just a lot of fun. But that brings us to Saturday, which was the actual NHL All-Star Game, and I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. Uh, the NHL All-Star Game has the best format out of any of the actual All-Star Games that take place. Baseball is probably, you know, right up there in terms of being actually competitive. You know, the NBA is pretty much a joke. The Pro Bowl was such a joke that they changed the format. So the NHL has the best all-star game. And what it is is uh, each 
conference has two divisions, right? In the Eastern Conference, it's the Atlantic and the Metropolitan. And in the Western Conference, it's the Central and the Pacific Divisions. Each division has their own all-star team. It was comprised of nine skaters and two goalies, along with a coach. And the format for the all-star game, it was a full game of three 20-minute periods, okay, just like we see every NHL game. But each of those periods, what's different about the all-star game, each of the periods was broken up into two 10-minute halves, all right? And at the 10-minute mark of each period, um, they stopped play, switched ends, and put their other goalies in. Now, so that made each period basically its own mini-game, okay? So in the first period, or first game, we saw the Central play the Pacific Division, okay? Second period was the Metro versus the Atlantic, now, the winner of those two periods plays in the third period, which is the final. And the format is really cool because it's three-on-three three full ice, just like we see in overtime in the NHL during the regular season, three-on-three three overtime. Three-on-three uh, three just makes it to where it's a, you know, it's, it's more wide open. There's a greater likelihood that there's going to be some goals. Um, it's to induce scoring, basically. Uh, you know, that's, that's the theory behind three-on-three. Uh, and it was a lot of fun, all right? So the first period I mentioned, it was the Central Division versus the Pacific Division. And Central ended up winning 6-4, to four, all right? Which, you know, yes, 6-4, to four, that's a very high-scoring period. But then again, it is the All-Star game, and it's 3-on-3. Three three. And I will say that, you know, these guys, NHL, they certainly gave, you know, it, was it 100% effort? No. Uh, but it was certainly more effort than the NBA players give in an NBA all-star game. All right. They, they were skating. Um, you know, it, it was, it wasn't certainly not maximum effort. You know, you could tell they were kind of, kind of taking it easy. Uh, but you know, that's the purpose. So you don't want to get hurt in an all-star game, certainly. Uh, but it was still back and forth, a lot of excitement and uh, central came out on top there, six to four second period, the Metropolitan versus the Atlantic Divisions, all right? And this one was a slugfest, man. Lots of goals, uh, goals everywhere, really. And the Metro, um, the Atlantic Division uh, came out on top 10-6, to six, right? And so Atlantic uh, got down a little bit early and came back, tied it, and just kind of took over. So that set up the third period, which was the Central Division versus the Atlantic Division, and this game was, you know, you could tell it was a little different than the than the first two. Uh, Atlantic won the game seven to five. All right, but we had like five or six goals in this game scored in like the last couple minutes. Um, it was it was very strange. It was very low scoring until that last couple minutes where we had literally. I'm not kidding. It was like five goals in the last like ninety seconds, <laughs> but. Uh, you could tell the Central Division came out a little flat, all right? They played in that first period, so they actually had to sit out the second period, right, while the Atlantic and the Metropolitan played. And that means that the Atlantic Division, they actually got to play the second and the third back-to-back -back periods. So they were a little more fresh. You could tell Central sitting down for a full period kind of uh, made them come out a little flat, a little slow, and... Um, you know, Atlantic put on a scoring clinic in that second period, so they were really firing on all cylinders, and Central came out after sitting down for 20 minutes 
and uh, it was certainly a bit of a disadvantage for the Central, but they still made it a good game. They attempted, you know, a decent comeback, and had the period had uh, a few more minutes in it, we probably would have seen a tie game, honestly, with how it was going, but so the Atlantic Division wins the All-Star Game, and uh, the All-Star Game MVP was Matthew Kachuk of the Florida Panthers. Uh, he is, you know, obviously a hometown Florida Panther, so that was cool that he got to win it. He finished with four goals and three assists between the the two periods that he played in. So a lot of points, and, um, you know, it's it was cool because his brother Brady was also on the Atlantic Division team. And uh, they got to play together. Their dad, mom and dad were there. They kept showing them in the stands. You know, Brady had five points, I think, himself. So uh, it was uh, it was a fun night for the, the Kachuk family. And, and Matthew gets uh, the MVP award. Now, the Atlantic team, the players and Coach Jim Montgomery, the whole team collectively got a $1 million check that they get to split. All right, so there is... They have to split it, what, uh, 11 or 12 ways. So, um, you know, not not as much money as, as you would think they would get from this, but, you know, a little less than 100 grand per guy. But it's still worthwhile, and uh, it, was, it was just fun to watch. Now, interesting note, too, I didn't mention this. All of the players, they wore their reverse retro jerseys all weekend long. Um, for the skills comp, you know, of course, they wear their own team's jerseys. So it was cool because you got to see every team's reverse retro jersey, except Seattle. They were actually the only team not represented because their representative who got voted in, Matty Beneers, he got hurt. So they didn't have another Kraken player to replace him. So the Kraken were the only team that wasn't represented, but that was due to injury. So you got to see everybody's reverse retro jerseys uh, on Friday night at the Skills Comp. And then the All-Star Game jerseys were reverse retro themed themselves they had the, like the mid 90s style western conference and eastern conference logos and like the black and brown and then um, each team's actual current logo was on their left shoulder for those jerseys and it had a south florida color scheme you know like uh, teal and uh, white and black and it, it was pretty they looked good uh, in pictures but on tv if you watched the game, you saw just how similar the the jerseys, the All Star Game jerseys looked. It was really pretty hard to discern who was on what team, and uh, even the players had difficulty with it at times. You could see there were several guys that made a pass to the other team, thinking that it was their their guys, just because they were all wearing the same same socks, the same pant covers, uh, the same gloves, like. The only thing different was the jerseys, and um, you know, at, at first glance, they appear pretty similar. So, uh, but overall, I mean, you know, All Star Weekend is fun. Uh, NHL All Star Game is probably my favorite out of the bunch. Like I said, it's just uh, it's really engaging. It's back and forth. There's a lot of action, a lot of goals, and um, you know, it's it's just to me, it's more fun than than any of the other All Star games. But nonetheless, that wraps up All Star Weekend in the NHL. I think most teams. Uh, enter the second part of the season with roughly 30 games or so remaining so um, you know we'll certainly keep you up to date on standings as we uh, get down towards the end of the season and these playoff races tighten up but we'll move over to the NBA do a standings update here in the NBA most teams have played about 56 to 57 games or so roughly so we're uh, a little bit 
further than what the NHL is in their regular season. Of course, the NHL had their all-star break this weekend. NBA's all-star break is, is coming up in uh, two weeks, so about a week and a half, actually. So we'll uh, we'll keep you up to date on that. But um, before we do the standings update, we did witness some history uh, this week, and that comes to us via the Los Angeles Lakers. LeBron James... Uh, past Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's all-time scoring record in NBA history, 38,388 points, all right? So uh, it's a record that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had for 39 years, and um, LeBron James is now the NBA's all-time leading scorer. So we did witness some pretty significant history this week, so that's that was pretty cool. Um, he needed 36 points going into uh, the game, Um this past uh, Tuesday night, and uh, he needed 36 points, and uh, he got that um, in the second half. Um, so, you know, there was never really a doubt. I mean, I think everybody in the building knew that, you know, 36 is, is pretty significant. You know, I mean, that's that's a really good night. Uh, but I think everybody knew that that was going to happen. So LeBron James is the NBA's all-time scoring leader, and so that's that's pretty cool to witness that. I mean, you know, his longevity, it speaks a lot. You know, that that just kind of further strengthens LeBron's case in the LeBron versus Michael Jordan, you know, GOAT debate, you know, which we're not going to get into that. But, you know, certainly LeBron James is on the Mount Rushmore of uh, the NBA in terms of best players to ever play the game. He's up there inside that top, um, top two or three, right, depending on, on how you feel about it. But We'll start off the standings update in the Eastern Conference. We'll just keep it to, you know, the top ten or twelve teams in each conference because the top ten get into the the play-in tournament slash playoffs. So, in the Eastern Conference, the Boston Celtics are still up top, thirty-eight and sixteen. All right, Milwaukee Bucks are second, uh, thirty-seven and seventeen. They're only a game behind Boston. They've won eight games in a row, nine out of their last ten, playing some really good basketball. All right, and then the Philadelphia 76ers are third at 34 and 18. They've won eight out of their last 10. Uh, fourth place in the East, Cleveland Cavaliers, 34 and 22. Fifth place, the Brooklyn Nets, 32 and 22. All right, they've lost a couple games in a row, and they've uh, made a big trade at the trade uh, before the trade deadline, which we'll get into in the Around the Island segment. So I, I do believe from here on out, Brooklyn might be going in the wrong direction. Uh, they're certainly not going to be moving up in the standings. If I had to guess, I would say they'll be going the opposite direction. All right, they're still fairly comfortable in that the, the play-in tournament, unless they just completely uh, get rid of Kevin Durant, which has been kind of rumored. So, you know, we'll we'll see on that. But Brooklyn, you know, look for them to continue to drop. Sixth in the East, the Miami Heat at 29-25. and 25. New York Knicks are seventh at thirty and twenty-six. Atlanta Hawks are eighth at twenty-seven and twenty-eight. Chicago Bulls are ninth, twenty-six and twenty-eight. And tenth in the East right now is the Indiana Pacers at twenty-five and thirty. All right, they've only won twice in their last ten. All right, um, not not what you want to see at this time of year, but um, they have the same record as the eleventh place team, the Toronto Raptors. All right, so that that could easily flip flop by the uh, standings update next week, and then the Washington Wizards are twelfth uh, at twenty four and twenty nine. Right, losers of three games in a row. 
Over in the Western Conference, the Denver Nuggets are up top at 38 and 17. They have a four and a half game lead on the Memphis Grizzlies, who are at 33 and 21. Memphis has hit a bit of a rough patch. Remember, they won 13 games in a row just a couple of weeks ago. Now um, they've lost eight out of their last 10. So uh, their their home record is still the best in the league at uh, 22 and five. But uh, if you get them outside of uh, FedEx Forum, they're 11 and 16, and they actually have a losing record against Western Conference teams. So. Uh, again, not not what you want to see from uh, a second place team in the Western Conference, but uh, Memphis is still a very good team. Sacramento Kings are third at thirty and twenty three. Los Angeles Clippers have climbed up to fourth at thirty one and twenty six. They've won eight out of their last ten. So too have the Phoenix Suns. All right, what a season it's been for Phoenix. They were up, then they were way down, and now they're climbing back up. They're thirty and twenty six. They've won. Three games in a row, eight games out of their last ten, and um, they're they're you know rumored to be fairly active at the trade deadline. And then sixth place, my Dallas Mavericks. All right, they are twenty nine and twenty six. All right, they made a massive trade here just before the trade deadline earlier this week over the weekend, in which they um, acquired a premier scorer, and we'll talk about that around the island. But that's certainly going to help them uh, continue to be in that top four to five mix there in the Western Conference. Give them a little more consistency scoring, and um, I'd look for Dallas to um, continue to climb, if I had to guess. Seventh place is the Golden State Warriors. They're 28 and 26 right now. All right, and um, bad news for them. Steph Curry injured his left leg uh, over the weekend, and uh, he's going to be out at least until after the All-Star break. It's looking like probably three or four weeks potentially that he's out. So obviously that's a that's a big component. Again, they're they're right there, you know, Memphis, same kind of deal. They're great at home, the Warriors are, but they're seven and twenty on the road. All right. So <clears throat> they want to make the playoffs. They're gonna have to turn that around. Uh eighth in the E or the uh, West is the New Orleans Pelicans, twenty nine and twenty seven. Uh they've actually uh lost seven out of their last ten, but the three games that they have won have been the last three games. All right, so they went on a losing streak there and have turned it around a little bit. So they're in eighth. Minnesota Timberwolves are ninth at 29 and 28. Utah Jazz are the 10th place team at 27 and 28. And then uh, the, the three teams that are kind of in contention for the play-in tournament that aren't currently sitting in one of those positions. 11th place, Oklahoma City Thunder, 26 and 28. 12th place, uh, Portland Trailblazers, 26 and 28. And then the Los Angeles Lakers at 25 and 30. All right, they are uh, two games out of that 10th place spot. So they're certainly in the mix. Um, now that LeBron has got that scoring record out of the way, he can focus on winning games. And that's uh, just something that the Lakers haven't been real consistent in doing. All right, and so um, they've pretty much been a 500 team all year and a little under for the season. But, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine the playoffs without LeBron, Anthony Davis, and Russell Westbrook, a team that features all three of those guys. It's hard to envision that they would not make the playoffs, um, but they they really haven't been in the playoff mix at all at any point really in the season. So uh, keep an eye on the Lakers and see, you know, they made a trade to acquire Rui Hachimura a couple weeks ago, and so that, that has helped out for sure. Um, I, if I had to bet, I would say 
that the Lakers probably will squeak into that play-in tournament as maybe the, the ninth, eighth or ninth seed at most. But, you know, still a lot of basketball left. You know, teams have 26 to 28 games left roughly. And so uh, we're certainly on, on the back third of the NBA season. And uh, we got an all-star break coming up in a week and a half. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little more uh, on next week's episode. But we'll move over to the PGA Tour and talk about some golf. This past weekend's tournament was the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, which is held in Pebble Beach, California. And similarly to what we saw a couple of weeks ago at the American Express, this tournament was a Pro-Am that featured a bunch of amateurs. It was the second of two uh, Pro-Ams on the tournament schedule. Uh, Only two, of course, the American Express and this one were the only two uh, pro-am tournaments on the calendar and they use three courses for this tournament of course pebble beach golf links that's a par 72 distance was 6,972 yards second course used was spyglass hill that was also a par 72 distance was 7,041 yards and then the third course that was used was the monterey peninsula country club and that was the, the shore course there par 71 distance 6,957 yards. The way that it worked, all of the professional golfers and their amateur partners uh, played around at all three courses before uh, a 54-hole cut is made after the third round. Then the final round was played at the Pebble Beach Golf Links for the top 60 professionals and ties. All right, now the field was, was awesome, but not necessarily because of the PGA players. There wasn't a whole lot of PGA horsepower out there. Only five of the top 30 golfers in the official world golf rankings were out there. All right, Matt Fitzpatrick, Victor Hovland, Jordan Spieth, Seamus Power, and Tom Hoagie, who won last year's tournament, uh, were out there. All right, but notable uh, amateur golfers that were out there. There was 156 celebrity golfers out there teeing it up, amateurs. Right, some notables: Aaron Rodgers, Josh Allen, Jason Bateman, Eric Church, Darius Rucker, and how can we not mention the infamous Bill Murray, who was always out there every year, brings a lot of entertainment to the event. The amateur portion: uh, Aaron Rodgers uh, and his partner actually won the pro am portion. All right, Rodgers is a damn good golfer. All right, if you watched any of this or have seen Aaron Rodgers on any of you know the match that he was in uh, you know that he is a really good golfer with a pretty low handicap and uh, so he won the pro-am portion but um, the tournament itself after the first round uh, it was pretty clear what course was going to be the most challenging Uh, the scores to par on each course after uh, the first round was uh, Monterey, uh, Monterey Peninsula was the lowest scoring at 60 under par. Pebble Beach was playing at 53 under par cumulatively after round one. And then Spyglass Hill was at 35 over par. All right, So it was pretty clear that Spyglass Hill uh, was going to be the challenging course for the weekend. Uh, and weather was certainly a factor. Of course, we're on the West Coast there in California. You know, had some cloud cover. Uh, some sunshine, but a lot of wind. And in fact, the wind got so bad during the third round on Saturday that they actually had to suspend the third round 
because of the high winds. And they resumed the third round on Sunday morning, and that actually forced a Monday afternoon finish. Okay, So they made the cut on Sunday afternoon after the third round, started the fourth round on Sunday, but they had to suspend it uh, due to darkness. So the fourth round got going uh, resumed on Monday, and we saw a Monday finish, which we get every once in a while on the PGA Tour due to weather and unforeseen things. So um, Monday's finish uh, for this, which was a little different than what we're used to, uh, in the end, the winner was Justin Rose, all right? He won with a score of 18 under par. It was his 11th career victory on the PGA Tour, but it was his first victory on tour since 2019. In fact, it had been 1,471 days between his uh, victories, to be exact. All right, so that's, you know, he obviously is a former top top ranked player in the world. Uh, I believe he's won a major championship. Um, certainly has, um, you know, 11 victories on that resume. And uh, what I found interesting was that Justin Rose was actually the first European golfer to win the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. So I, I just I thought that was um, rather interesting with how many good European golfers we have on tour. Uh, for him to be the first one to win this tournament, I just thought that was interesting. But Rose won 18 under par, really didn't stress out too much. All right, he, uh, he played pretty good uh, over the course of the weekend. He opened on Thursday and Friday with a pair of 69s. Uh, followed up on Saturday with a 65, and then final round 66. So that put him at 18 under. There was a two-way tie for second at 15 under. Three shots back a rose. was Brendan Todd and Brandon Wu, uh, both at 15 under. Three guys tied for fourth at 14 under. Denny McCarthy, Keith Mitchell, and Peter Malnati. And then we had four guys tied for seventh at 12 under. That was Taylor Pendrith. Kevin Yu, Ryan Moore, and Joe Bramlett, all right? So you could see, you know, Justin Rose really didn't have to stress out too much. He had a three-shot victory, was four shots clear of the next group, and uh, six shots clear of that group there at 12 under. So really wasn't extremely stressful. Rose played really well uh, over the course of the, the weekend and was able to fight the wind and the weather to get his 11th career victory on tour. But that brings us to this weekend's tournament, which is a good one. It's the Waste Management Phoenix Open. That's at TPC Scottsdale, which is in Scottsdale, Arizona, right outside Phoenix. It's a par 71. Distance is 7,261 yards. All right, This is one of the more iconic courses on tour. And I mentioned it's just right outside Phoenix, which is just down the road from State Farm Stadium where they are playing a pretty big football game this weekend, right? So, yes, the Super Bowl is in Phoenix this week, all right, along with this tournament. They will be going on in the same weekend, which th I found this very interesting. This is the fourth time uh, that the Waste Management Phoenix Open and the Super Bowl are being played in the same weekend, all right? Now, it's the fourth time that Phoenix has hosted a Super Bowl. The, the previous three years, 1996, 2008, and 2015, all right? Those are the previous four weekends or three weekends in which uh, Phoenix has hosted both the Super Bowl and the Waste Management Phoenix Open. Now, 
you know, it seems as though uh, Arizona is getting the Super Bowl. Phoenix is hosting the Super Bowl once every seven or eight years, which, you know, I mean, that that I was pretty surprised to see that. But nonetheless, this is the fourth time we've had this uh, happen, most recently in 2015. Okay, this is the, of course, the 57th Super Bowl and the 88th edition of the Waste Management Phoenix Open, which makes it the fifth oldest tournament on the PGA Tour. All right. Now, of course, this is a Thursday through Sunday regularly scheduled golf tournament. I think they start a little earlier on Sunday so they can finish up uh, just a couple hours before the Super Bowl kicks off. So it will not interfere. You'll be able to watch the final round uh, on Sunday which will end a couple hours before Super Bowl kicks off. So there will be no interference with that unless, of course, we get into some outrageous playoff hole, you know, playoff competition, But uh, which we did see last year, but I, I don't think it will last two hours. So um, you should be clear to watch this tournament if you are a golfer and want to watch the Super Bowl. Um, but not only is this course uh, one of the more iconic ones on tour, it features uh, the par 3 16th hole, which is the stadium hole. Grandstands, it's usually packed. Uh, players encourage noise, you know, and um, gets really, really rowdy. Uh, the crowd will cheer uh, excessively when you get close to the pin or drain a hole in one goes nuts. We actually saw, I think, uh, we saw one hole in one last year uh, on this tournament. Um, I think it was... Uh, um, Sam Ryder, I believe, got a hole-in-one last year on the par 3 16th, which sent the crowd into a frenzy, people throwing beer cans. I mean, it was it was pretty, pretty outrageous. Um, but interestingly about this tournament this year, it's the first full-field designated event for 2023, which is one of the larger purse tournaments, you right? I mentioned there's, you know, I think there's 18 tournaments on the schedule that have an increased purse to try and compete with the live golf tour this is the first one and it is a purse of 20 million dollars for this tournament now the field uh it's 136 players this week which is a a bit more than normal which is normal's 132 players so we have a bigger field than normal and it is absolutely spectacular just a, a loaded field uh the big money at stake this week is certainly bringing out the big names Eight of the top ten golfers in the official world golf rankings are going to be out there, including the top three players in those world golf rankings. Uh, Rory McIlroy, Scotty Scheffler, and John Rahm. Okay, Rory, this is his first start on the PGA Tour since winning the CJ Cup back in October. Now, he's played five times on the DP World Tour since October, and his finishes in those five starts, uh, a T2, a solo fourth, a T4, solo fourth again, and then he won uh, last week uh, in Dubai, all right? So he is, all five of his starts, he's finished no lower than fourth, which is just outrageous. He's the number one player in the world golf rankings for a reason, and uh, would not be shocked at all if he were to win this week. Scotty Scheffler, he won this tournament last year uh, in an epic playoff over Patrick Cantlay, all right? And, um, he trailed by nine shots entering Saturday's third round and ended up coming back to win in a dramatic playoff. So Scheffler certainly right up there with the best. Uh, would look for him to compete. And then John Rahm, of course. The dude has won four out of the last six events worldwide that he's played in. 
and uh, you know kind of fell apart there a little bit uh, last week but nonetheless uh, he's still uh, ready to go and uh, dialed in other notable names Patrick Cantlay Colin Morikawa Will Zalatoris going to be out so a lot of firepower for this thing like I said eight out of the top ten and the official world golf rankings the big money brings out the big names and uh, this field certainly has um, you know I don't know if it's quite major championship-esque but it is definitely up there and uh, it's one of the more fun tournaments Um, you know it's actually uh, the tournament that has the highest attendance on the PGA Tour uh, every year and that's because they load up the grandstands I think it's holes uh 14, 15, 16, or 15, 16, 17. They have a lot of grandstands. 16 is the the main hole where everybody packs into triple-decker of grandstands there. Um, But, yeah, this is the highest-attended event on the PGA Tour by the fans. So you couple that with the fact that the Super Bowl is just right down the road this weekend from here. And uh, this, this tournament is going to be packed. It's going to be loud. It's going to be rowdy, noisy, and it's everything you want for uh, an exciting golf tournament you got the big names out there of course last year i mentioned we went into a playoff with this tournament so um, i would certainly expect to see some phenomenal golf this weekend very competitive and um you know it's like i said those guys out there in phoenix know how to to get rowdy and um, it'll certainly be that so i'll try and catch as much as this tournament as possible like i said it's not going to interfere with the super bowl as Sunday's final round for this thing ends just a couple hours before kickoff. So uh, I will be tuned into this over the weekend, and um, you know we check back in next week and see how it turned out. But we'll move over to our segment called Around the Island, and that is where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. Have a lot to get into, so we'll kind of get going here. Starting off in the National Football League, biggest announcement from the NFL this past week was that Tom Brady – the GOAT, has officially announced his retirement from the NFL for a second time. All right, he posted a video last week back on February 1st saying that this time his retirement was official. Now, I mention that because exactly one year ago to the day on February 1st of 2022, Tom Brady announced his retirement. And as we all know, that retirement was short-lived because he came back out of retirement brief retirement to play for Tampa Bay this season. Tom Brady, he's 45 years old, all right? He's played 23 seasons in the NFL, which both of those numbers are just ridiculous. He's won seven Super Bowls, which is the most all-time. He actually has more Super Bowl wins by himself than any other single franchise in the NFL, all right? Steelers, uh, Cowboys, they're, they're up there, but not at seven, Uh, He's won Super Bowl MVP five times, won the league MVP three times. He made the Pro Bowl 15 times, threw for a total of 89,214 yards, and he accounted for 677 total touchdowns, all right? So he retires as the NFL's all-time leader in passing yards, passing touchdowns, regular and postseason wins, all right? He retires with 35 career playoff wins, in 47 career playoff games, which is a phenomenal winning percentage for a team, let alone a, a, an individual, all right? And uh, he actually has 35 playoff wins, which that, that number is more than all but two 
entire NFL franchises. Of course, the New England Patriots have 37, all right? Majority of those came with, with Tom Brady. And then the Pittsburgh Steelers have 36, all right? Um, and Tom Brady has 35 as starting quarterback. Now, reports have indicated that the only two options that he was considering this offseason were either retirement or coming back to Tampa Bay, all right? There was some noise about him possibly joining another team like the Raiders or the Dolphins. Uh, but in the end, uh, per him, it was either Buccaneers or retirement. And uh, he obviously has opted to retire. Now, I would say I'll believe it when I see it regarding his retirement, considering what we saw last offseason. But uh, his level of play deteriorated substantially this year. Uh, you could tell he just was not the same quarterback he has been. And uh, I think the retirement is permanent this time. Now, he said himself in that video that he's done for good. So um, I would tend to believe him <clears throat> this time around. But we did also have another retirement, maybe not as prominent, uh, but it was definitely noteworthy. Uh, longtime wide receiver A.J. Green has announced his retirement after 11 seasons. He was a former top five overall draft pick. He finished... Uh, with 70 career receiving touchdowns, that's about six and a half per season on average. Of course, these last couple of years, he didn't have many. Uh, he also, in his career, he recorded a stretch of five straight seasons of at least 1,000 receiving yards, and he made the Pro Bowl seven times, all right? Now, he, in his prime, he was absolutely spectacular as a Cincinnati Bengals wide receiver and uh, one of the most dominant receivers in the game when he played. But I think his resume is good, um, but I don't. it'll be interesting to see if he gets to Canton. All right, Obviously, Tom Brady's a first ballot Hall of Famer. We know that. But A.J. Green, different story. All right, I think uh, the numbers would indicate uh, his, his dominance on the field would, is that level of, of Hall of Fame. But the problem is, is his numbers, you know, aren't, super spectacular they're good but they're not you know um you know above like what you would consider hall of fame status and he never won a championship so i think that's probably going to hurt him a bit too um but nonetheless he was a terrific wide one of my favorite wide receivers in the game when he did play so uh it is time for him to retire now this other piece of nfl news the nfl released some data on concussions from this past year and it's pretty alarming. Uh, according to the data that was released by the NFL, there were 149 diagnosed concussions this past season, over 271 games. All right. That's that number of, of 149 is actually an 18% increase from what we saw in 2021 when there were 126 concussions. All right. And this year's total that 149 number is 14% higher than the three-year average uh, of 130 concussions between 2018 and 2020. All right. Now, NFL Chief Medical Officer Dr. Alan Sills, he has attributed, he came out and released this statement. He said that there's several factors to the rise in number of concussions, but the main one being the protocol change uh, for concussions. And he said that the protocol change has, quote, strengthened and broadened the definition of a concussion. Now, if you recall, the protocols were changed uh, about week, I don't know, six, seven, whenever Tua Tagovailoa had his first concussion against Buffalo. 
<clears throat> and so they, they redid the protocols. And basically, if you get hit in the head, you got to come out and go to the tent and uh, get evaluated. So, you know, we'll see. Um, I'm sure, uh, you know, concussions are just going to happen. We'll see if they do anything with the protocols this offseason. If anything, they might make them more uh, more stiff, honestly, because um, that's, you know, NFL's main concern is the head injuries. So um, we're seeing a lot of CTE pop up and a lot of guys that have retired or, 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 you know, been in the league a long time. So just thought that those numbers were kind of interesting. But we'll move over to the NHL, and fresh off the heels of this year's All-Star Weekend, uh, the NHL announced that the 2024 All-Star Game will be held February 2nd and 3rd of 2024 at Scotiabank Arena in Toronto, Ontario. All right, so NFL or NHL All-Star Game goes back to Canada for next year, and uh, Toronto obviously is a great city, um, serious hockey town, and... Um, you know, Scotiabank Arena is more than capable of uh, hosting a successful All-Star Weekend. Now, we did have a couple of contract extensions to go over, uh, three to be exact. The first one uh, is the New York Islanders. Uh, within 72 hours of acquiring center Bo Horvat from the Vancouver Canucks in that trade last week, the Islanders signed him to an eight-year, $68 million extension, all right? Horvat's just, you know, he was in the All-Star game this this past weekend. Terrific young player, uh, had to lock him. You make a trade like that and give up the assets you did, you have to uh, lock him up long-term, which is what the Islanders did. Uh, the Washington Capitals, they have re-signed forward Dylan Strom, five years, $25 million, all right? Strom was the former third overall pick back in 2015 by the Coyotes, all right? Didn't pan out there, bounced around. He went to Chicago, still didn't pan out, and finally made his way to Washington, where he's actually had the most success so far in his career. And he's, you know, believe it or not, he's only 25 years old, so he's still very much in his prime. Another young player to get signed to an extension this past week was uh, Buffalo Sabres forward Dylan Cousins. He and the Sabres agreed on a seven-year $49.7 million contract. That's an average annual value of just over $7 million per year. Cousins, again, former uh, top-end first-round pick just uh, several years ago. And, um, you know, he's had a terrific year for Buffalo, and he's fit right in there, so Sabres wanted to lock him up. But uh, moving over to Major League Baseball, all right, the free agent signings that we saw this past week First one, the Toronto Blue Jays. They signed relief pitcher Chad Green, two years, $8.5 million. Now, the interesting part is that he has club options for 2025 and 2026, right, that could push the valuation of the contract to $29.25 million, all right? Chad Green's actually a really good reliever. He, he was off to a terrific start last year. He, he had through uh, in 15 innings before he, uh, on May 19th, he experienced some right elbow discomfort. And then a couple days later, they announced that uh, he needed Tommy John surgery. So he missed the rest of the Yankees season last year. And uh, recovery time for Tommy John for a pitcher is 12 to 18 months. So it's likely that we will not see Chad Green for the first part of the season, which explains why his contract is structured the way it is. All right, Green's going to make just uh, about two and a quarter million this year. And then after this year, the Blue Jays need to decide whether or not to exercise the club option um, for the 2024, 2025, and 2026 seasons. And if they do, he will make $9 million in each of those three seasons to get up to that 
uh, $29 million mark. So uh, interesting structured contract. That's why I brought that up. You don't really see that uh, very often. Los Angeles Dodgers, they re-signed starting pitcher Tony Gonsolin. Two years, $6.65 million. It's through the 2024 season, all right? Believe it or not, Tony Gonsolin was an all-star last year, all right? He made the all-star game. He's a great number four, number five starter in a rotation, and they just got him for a little over $3 bucks a season, all right? Which is, I mean, that's you can get an all-star caliber pitcher for $3 million, starting pitcher for $3 million. I mean, that's um, that seems like a really Dodger-friendly contract. And then the last one, um, Seattle Mariners, they re-signed uh, super utility man, Dylan Moore, three years, $8.875 million. Now, I only mention that because Dylan Moore is one of those guys, he really can uh, literally play any position on the field, all right? And he's actually really good at all of them. So infield, outfield, doesn't matter. Hell, you could probably throw him on the mound uh, and he could throw a, an inning or two for you, but uh, he's just a good baseball player. So, um Mariners, I like what they're doing this offseason. Right? They've made a lot of moves, and uh, they're a team to keep an eye on this year. Last piece of Major League Baseball news, um, the World Baseball Classic. All right, We know that that is actually coming up in about a month. That starts on March 8th, so about a month away from the World Baseball Classic. Uh, the rosters for the teams will be announced later this week, so I will go over those. Uh, probably on next week's episode. I don't know if we want to wait till we get a little bit closer, but uh, so I'll have the rosters for the World Baseball Classic coming at you here soon. Uh, but the MLB this past week did announce that the World Baseball Classic is going to use the Major League Baseball rules from the past few seasons instead of what they are going to use this upcoming season. All right. So this year in Major League Baseball, and I've talked about this many episodes ago. Major League Baseball has implemented a pitch clock, all right, in between pitches. Um, the ban on shifts for infielders, right, can't load up one side of the infield with all four guys, all right, so that, that's banned this year. And then larger bases are also going to be in play during the regular season. But the uh, MLB come out uh, has come out and said that the World Baseball Classic will not be using these new rules and that they will be using – uh, standard rules that we've seen uh, the past several years, all right? So, you know, I mean, uh, pretty much every team is going to be comprised of, you know, the best MLB players anyway. So uh, I don't see really why you wouldn't try these out. I mean, this is the place really to try them out, all right? It's the World Baseball Classic. You know, there's there's no um, World Series. You know, obviously there's pride for your country or whatever, but uh, it's not like the World Series where, you know, that, that is what you play the game for. And so, in my opinion, I think they should try it out and see how it looks uh, because then that would give them time to maybe uh, change their mind on doing it in the regular season. But uh, nonetheless, the World Baseball Classic is going to use the rules that we have seen the past several years. But we'll finish out the Around the Island segment in the NBA. And um, I've waited to record this specific segment to cover all of the trade deadline deals because the trade deadline is this Thursday, February 9th, and uh, I was hoping to um, get as many trades on here as possible, but I do want to get this episode out midweek because it is the Super Bowl preview, so I want to get this out, but there's really only been one trade deadline uh, deal that has taken place, and that was this past Sunday. 
the Brooklyn Nets, all right, and the Dallas Mavericks made a massive trade that has completely shaken the NBA. Uh, the Dallas Mavericks acquired uh, guard Kyrie Irving from the Brooklyn Nets, all right. Uh, this was after uh, last Friday, Kyrie Irving came out and demanded a trade from Brooklyn, right, before the deadline. Like, he was pretty adamant, which only gave Brooklyn less than a week to get a deal done, and it really only took a, a couple days because Friday is when he demanded the trade and he was traded on Sunday. So Brooklyn did accommodate that request, and it was my Dallas Mavericks who were the suitors for that. All right, the Mavericks, they acquired Kyrie Irving and uh, forward Markeith Morris from Brooklyn in exchange for Spencer Dinwiddie, Dorian Finney-Smith, a first and second round pick in 2029, and... Um, a second round pick in 2027 all right so you know they didn't really give up uh I, I feel you know Dinwiddie obviously was a great role player certainly not to the level of um you know a Kyrie Irving type player Dorian Finney-Smith has emerged into a legitimate three and D guy was a valuable piece to the Mavericks but uh you got to give up a little bit to get a little bit and then the draft picks I'm not worried about those that's that's six drafts from now you know even if the Mavericks um you know, sign Kyrie Irving to an extension because Kyrie Irving, this is a risky deal for, for Dallas because Kyrie is a free agent uh, after this season. So they're only getting about 26 to 28 regular season games with Kyrie plus the playoffs if they make it. So um, even if they extend Kyrie Irving to an extension, you got to figure it's probably in the neighborhood of about four to six years anyways, what they'll give him. So, um, you know, those draft picks, you know, Kyrie probably won't even be on the team at that point, I would guess. So, um, but uh, nonetheless, it makes the Mavs a legitimate contender, all right? They, they'll they get Christian Wood back in the next, you know, few weeks or so from, from that thumb injury that he had a couple weeks ago. And so you got a, a big three of Luka Doncic, Kyrie Irving, and Christian Wood, you know, to go with uh, role players such as Tim Hardaway Jr., uh, Reggie Bullock and I, you know I think I, I mentioned in the standings update the Mavs are in the sixth spot as as I record this but you know if if Kyrie can continue to produce um, you know like he has this year then the Mavs are, are certainly going to be you know that's the best backcourt duo in the NBA Luka and Kyrie uh, the Mavs are now the only team with two all-star starters they're also the only team with uh, two players that are averaging at least uh, 27 points a game, all right, because Kyrie, as I record this, is averaging 27 points a game. Luke is averaging 33 points a game. So the only only team with uh, two players averaging at least 25 points. So uh, it's a great trade for the Mavericks. And, you know, even if they can't get a deal done with Kyrie in the offseason to extend him, they'll have an absolute ton of, of salary cap space to go sign free agents or, or make other trades. So, and rumor has it, you know, um, by the trade deadline, like I said, this has been the only trade that's happened, which is a little disappointing. Um, I'm sure, you know, later on, um, I'm recording this uh, the day before the deadline, all right? And so we haven't seen as much action as we thought, but the Mavericks might not be done at the trade deadline. There's been a report come out that they're interested maybe in DeAndre Ayton from the Suns. So, I don't know if that'll get done or not. Probably a little more logistically involved with that. But either way, Luka and Kyrie, the best backcourt duo in the league probably, and uh, makes the Mavericks a legitimate contender in the Western Conference. So I am certainly happy about that. Uh, the other 
NBA news uh, is regarding the All-Star game. I went over the All-Star starters last week. Well, this past week, the All-Star game reserves were announced. In the Western Conference, it's John Morant, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Damian Lillard, Paul George, DeMontis Sabonis, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Lori Markkinen. All terrific options. And in the Eastern Conference, it's Tyrese Halliburton, Jalen Brown, DeMar DeRozan, Drew Holiday, Julius Randle, Joel Embiid, and Bam Adebayo. Now, it's it's pretty surprising to see Joel Embiid not be a starter. I think he's probably a little sour about that, but um, he's still going to Utah to play in that All-Star game and uh, remind you that these players, just because they represent the West or the East, doesn't mean that they will be playing uh, for – uh, the West or the East captains. Um, that draft that we talked about will take place live pregame. But uh, that's going to wrap up the 109th episode of Sports Island. It was a long one this week, but just a ton of stuff to get into. And uh, we have a massive sports weekend. Of course, the Super Bowls this weekend. That's where all my attention will be. That and on the PGA Tour, the Waste Management Phoenix Open, especially on Saturday. You definitely want to tune into that. It's going to be some terrific golf. And then, of course, we have uh, the NHL and the NBA that are, are still uh, going on, right? So um, big, big sports weekend here, right? The Phoenix area is going to be rocking and rolling with uh, the Waste Management Phoenix Open down there as well as the Super Bowl. And um, so it's, it's going to be a good weekend, and, and we will have plenty to discuss on next week's episode. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.